This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Our topic for discussion today is benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. By age 60, it's estimated that at least half the men will have some symptoms of BPH. While BPH is not a life-threatening condition, and only rarely does it result in serious health consequences, it commonly causes symptoms affecting men's lifestyles. Our guest today is Dr. Mitchell Humphreys, Chair of the Department of Urology at Mayo Clinic Arizona and Dean of the Mayo Clinic School of Continuous Professional Development. Mitch, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to today's conversation. Well, let's start out with some basic things. Let's talk about the symptoms of BPH and how we use those to help evaluate patients with the condition. So it's a great term and a great way to start because BPH is broad and it can mean many different things depending on the context of how it's used. Typically, we consider the spectrum of symptoms as lower urinary tract symptoms or as we abbreviate it, LUT. And those symptoms can be due to B can be due to BPH and bladder obstruction, or it can really be due to an end result of bladder dysfunction. And so we'd be remiss if we ignored the bladder in this whole equation. And the bladder really is not a smart organ. It's a vital organ, but it's not smart. It has three essential functions. But if anything goes wrong with any of those functions, it can have profound and even debilitating outcomes for patients. And what I mean by that is the bladder knows how to fill hold urine, and then squeeze urine at the end of that. And anything that interrupts any of those functions can manifest as symptoms. So there can be overlap between bladder symptoms of dysfunction as well as prostate obstruction. And prostate obstruction can cause bladder dysfunction. However, when we talk about BPH, most men typically experience slowing of the urinary stream, decreased force of stream, difficulty initiating urination, more pronounced, nighttime or nocturia, a sensation of incomplete bladder emptying, urinary frequency, urgency, or they may develop infections, development of bladder stones, uh, or some of them can have urinary leakage, most commonly described as terminal leakage just after they finish voiding or even hematuria. If, un- if left unchecked, these symptoms or BBH can manifest, as you said earlier, as renal dysfunction or even permanent bladder dysfunction. The problem with these symptoms is most men attribute this as a normal process of aging, when in fact it's a reflection of a pathophysiologic process going on that's causing those symptoms. So accepting that your voiding is getting worse is not a normal process of aging and is in fact a reflection of BPH. When we talk about how these patients should be evaluated in terms of managing these symptoms when they come in with those complaints, typically a medical history to put and understand how their urination has been, the time course of their symptoms. Uh, It always should include a physical exam, including a digital rectal exam, and a PSA. That PSA is important if they have a lifespan for greater than 10 years, both to screen for prostate cancer, but it's also a biomarker reflective of the size of the prostate or how much adenoma is there, and that helps to put things into context. Probably one of the most important parts of the workup is a validated questionnaire, such as the AUA symptom score or the International Prostate Symptom Score, or IPSS, because that really puts their symptoms in context of how much it interferes with their quality of life and their daily living. 
There's other questionnaires such as the BPH Impact Index, but most of the time, any of those would be sufficient points as a starting point for working up those patients. Also, you should consider getting a urinalysis to rule out other causes of their symptoms and potentially a uroflow with post-void residuals just to see how well their bladder is functioning, how well it's emptying, and how much of a problem their prostate or BPH really is. One of the problems with BPH is the overlap of symptoms with other conditions. I, I've had men who come in and state that they think they've got a prostate problem because of their urinary frequency, and when you question them, they may be drinking six to eight bottles of water per day, and they haven't decided or realized the fact that what goes in has to come out. And then urinary tract infections. Uh, so there's a lot of other things that can cause some of these similar symptoms, correct? That's absolutely right. Probably one of the biggest things that I see that confuses the issue with BPH is those men with uh, heart impairment or chronic uh, heart disease that get lower extremity edema and they go to bed at night and then they start mobilizing that fluid at night so they have more pronounced nocturia. Probably one of the biggest causes I see for nocturia um, in that nighttime getting up multiple times is sleep apnea. So I spend a great deal of time talking about sleep patterns. Do they snore? Do they have sleep apnea? Because when patients have sleep apnea and the right side of their heart gets expanded, what that does is that releases atrial natriuretic peptide, which basically turns the volume up on the kidneys and tells the kidneys, this patient has too much blood volume, get it off, start making more urine, let's get the, this volume off. And so consequently, they have to pee more during the night. Yeah. You mentioned physical exam as part of the evaluation. What exactly are we looking for uh, when we do a digital rectal exam for BPH? So when you're doing a digital rectal exam, there's several aspects that are important. One is understanding the size and the character of the prostate. Is there nodularity? Is it fixed? Um, Is it firm? Is it mobile? Um, What is the rectal tone like? Sometimes if there's a lot of laxity in rectal rectal tone, you may think of a central nervous problem. Um, You want to understand that prostate. Or obviously if there's malignancy or is it boggy, is there signs of prostatitis or infection? Um, those are all important in understanding the context of what's going on with that prostate. Um, the other thing is it also gives you an estimation of prostate size. It doesn't tell you what's going on inside the prostate, but it certainly tells you what's going on with the outer portion. Does the size of the prostate correlate with symptoms of BPH? Very little correlation. There's been many studies that have looked at digital rectal exam, size estimation, and what happens with the prostate. And the important part on that is we talk about the prostate, the easiest way to think about it is to think about it as an orange. With an orange peel, that represents the um, prostate capsule or the peripheral zone, also the area where about 90% of prostate cancers originate, and then the medial orange. And that medial orange is the transitional zone. That's typically the etiology of most BPH, and men pee through the middle of that orange like peeing through a donut hole. What's happening on the outside of the prostate, the peripheral zone, doesn't always translate to what's happening on the inside of the prostate in the morphology. Additionally, the prostate can grow up into the bladder and get something called a median lobe that can act like a ball valve to obstruct the bladder neck. That's completely undetectable on physical exam. You can also have some other anatomic variations, such as a high-riding bladder neck um, and all of those other variations. So really, size when it comes to the prostate doesn't matter. Symptoms are completely independent of size. Now, you mentioned symptoms being either irritative or obstructive. Are the obstructive symptoms purely due to the size or enlargement of the prostate? Yes and no. 
Um, and I know that's not a good answer, but the severity of the symptoms in studies have not really correlated with the degree of bladder outlet obstruction. So what I mean by that is men can have severe obstruction from a very large prostate, 300-gram prostate, and little, virtually no symptoms, and men can have a very small prostate, 20 to 30 grams, and severe manifestations of uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. So the obstructive symptoms do not correlate because it's more than just the prostate, but it also involves the bladder neck. To understand that, if you think about the physiologic process that goes on with bladder outlet obstruction, as the prostate grows and it gets more tissue and more stroma, it becomes more obstructive. And what the bladder does to overcome that obstruction, it's like any muscle. It becomes stronger and to push the urine out past that outlet obstruction. What happens eventually is that bladder can only get so strong because the body gets tired of supplying the bladder with all this extra energy and ATP. And so what happens is you start to develop trabeculation in the bladder, which is essentially where the body says, boy, I just can't keep all this muscle functioning and happy. And it starts to turn muscle fiber into collagen fiber, which has a much lower energy requirement. Which once more of the bladder has been replaced by collagen, it no longer has the ability to squeeze. It loses its compliance, its elasticity, and that's where you start to get into the permanent bladder dysfunction as a cause of the outlet uh, obstruction. So that's why some of our medications, like the alpha-adrenergic antagonists work, they're really dealing with obstruction due to muscle and relaxing yep. those, and they wouldn't really have any effect on the size of the prostate. Correct. Okay. Well, so we've got a patient. We've got symptoms. We didn't find anything suspicious on digital rectal exam. How do we decide when to initiate treatment for our patient? So from, from my standpoint as a urologist, there's essentially five criteria for me that would say, look, your BPH is heading in the wrong direction. For natural history studies, we need to intervene um, sooner rather than later. And that is, number one, the person with recurrent or persistent urinary retention. Number two, the person that gets recurrent urinary tract infections because they're unable to completely empty their bladder. Number three, persistent or recurrent gross hematuria from large prostates um, that have been ruled out from other potential etiologies. Um, those patients that develop bladder stones, that's almost universally synonymous with a sign of bladder outlet obstruction where they need something done. Or those patients that start to present with late disease where they get bilateral hydronephrosis or renal insufficiency. Any one of those five things going on is indication that they need treatment because without treatment, they are going to progress with their disease. They could have potentially um, significant comorbidity. Outside of those indications, it's solely dependent on the patient and their symptoms. It's dependent on their quality of life, how well they want to live. Um, you know, we have men coming in all the time and say, boy, my life revolves around, whenever I go somewhere, identifying where the bathroom is so I know that I have time to get there. Um, and, and what I would say to those men is it's not a normal part of aging. And there's absolutely things that we can do to treat BPH and bladder obstruction. obstruction. So I suspect the patient population that primary care providers have versus the population that you see are somewhat different in that we probably use a lot more watchful waiting and determining how much of a nuisance these symptoms are. I think what I've recognized in my practice is the most common thing that makes me think maybe this patient needs some treatment is the number of episodes of nocturia. How often are they getting up at night and 
seems like when it's four to five times, that's really interfering with their sleep and then their daytime function. You're exactly right. I mean, I, I think that at nighttime is really the chance where the body has its time to heal. The other thing that exacerbates the nocturia is the bladder and the trusers, a volitional muscle. So at night, if you fully wake yourself up as much as you are during the day, then you can squeeze better and you can do a better job emptying your bladder. But if you're kind of partly asleep, your bladder gives a partial effort, it doesn't completely clear so that you can go back to sleep, it doesn't take as long to fill back up because you're not emptying as well. And so it makes those obstructive, it magnifies those obstructive symptoms and the obstructive nature of the disease. So if you do something to the outlet to relieve that obstruction, and they can do a better job of emptying, they can empty completely, it takes longer for their bladder to fill, and they can then get a good night's rest. Attend the Mayo Clinic Healthcare Leader Intensive, offered three times in 2019, March, June, and November. Gain insights into the operations of an integrated healthcare practice learn leadership and administrative skills that can be used at your organization, and discover the best practices that have established Mayo Clinic as a trusted healthcare provider. Registration is open. For more details, visit ce.mayo.edu. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. So let's talk about how we use pharmacologic therapy for treatment. Where do we start? So, you know, medical therapy is essentially uh, centered around three different classes of medication. They really target the underlying physiologic process going on in the prostate. So as we age, the prostate stroma increases, and some people believe this to be an embryologic reawakening where that prostate growth just grows unchecked. Um, And this is a hormone-dependent action. So the enzymes in the prostate, um, 5-alpha reductase, it essentially converts testosterone to dihydroesterone, which essentially can be thought as as food for the prostate. So one of the medications we start with is um, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. They essentially block the conversion of testosterone to DHT, um, and there's essentially two types in practice. There's uh, finasteride. Uh, which inhibits type 2, 5-alpha reductase, and then there's also detusteride, which inhibits both type 1 and type 2. These medications typically are better suited for larger prostates. Um, They reduce the prostate volume by anywhere from 20 to 25%, causing global shrinkage of the prostate. They increase the flow rates of around 10%, reduce symptom scores by 20%, and reduce the risk of retention and progression of the BPH in about 50% of the prostate or 50% of patients. Um, they also reduce the PSA by 50% in 9 to 12 months. So you have to think about those men that are on these medications. Whenever you get a PSA, 9 to 12 months afterwards, you have to double that PSA uh, in terms of screening for uh, prostate cancer. They also have a side benefit for those men that have hematuria due to their BPH. Um, they typically can work to reduce that um, hematuria from the prostate and sometimes are used for prostatic hematuria. The downside of these medications is it may take up to six weeks to see an effect, and it may take a full six to nine months um, to see the maximal effect of these uh, medications to become apparent. Um, And so 
these are better suited for larger prostates than those kind of with a longer duration of action. The ones that provide a more immediate effect are the alpha blockers. And so we talked about alpha blockers or alpha receptors being in the bladder neck and in the prostate due to the stromal growth and smooth muscle in there. And what they will do is they will go in, relax those muscles, decrease the tonicity of the bladder neck and the prostate to allow improved urination. There's essentially two classes of these medications, the non-selective and the selective. And why that's important is because the subreceptors are responsible for the side effects. So the receptors that are concentrated in the prostate and the bladder neck are alpha-1A receptors, and the ones that are in blood vessels are alpha-1B receptors. So that's why sometimes when you take these medications, there's a side effect of hypotension for the non-selective. And there's also alpha-1D receptors, and those are located in the nasal passages. So you may hear people on these alpha blockers that complain of nasal congestion and things like that. When we talk about the non-selective medications, we're talking about terazosin, doxazosin, and alphazosin. Um, and you have to be careful with the terazosin and doxazosin because you have to titrate those up to prevent hypotension, and you also have to titrate them down when you're taking them off. Probably the two most common medications used um, for alpha blockers are the selective, which is the tamulosin and the psilidocin. Uh, psilidocin has the highest alpha-1A affinity, and you see these effects very fast in the prostate. So within a few days, you can start to see improved urination from these medications. But because they relax the bladder, neck, and the prostate muscle, they also have the highest degree of retrograde ejaculation. So it's important to talk to your patients about that before putting them on these medications. Anywhere from 15 to 30% of patients will experience uh, retrograde ejaculation. Um, the third class of medication um, that's the, probably the newest one on the market uh, or the newest one used in this space is Tadalafil or Cialis. And this is a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor. And it works through the nitrous oxide pathway to work on the smooth muscle. The nice thing about this is it treats both erectile dysfunction and BPH symptoms. The effect on BPH compared to either the alpha blocker or the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor isn't as much of a clinical effect, but it's ideally suited to that man suffering with both erectile dysfunction and um, BPH. And when we talk about these medications, when used in combination, they work better than either any agent alone. And so most of the data... Um, through the natural history studies and through randomized trials, have looked at combining alpha blockers and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, showing a greater effect on clinical outcomes in terms of BPH symptoms than any of them alone. Also combining either an alpha blocker or 5-alpha reductase inhibitor with um, the Tadalafil um, shows more benefit in those patients as well. Probably the newest data in medical therapy, which is, uh, scares some people, is those men that have um, kind of bladder overactivity as a result of their BPH, combining an anticholinergic medication with one of the um, bladder outlet medications. And it's really important for those bladders with patients with bladder irritability to consider this. A lot of physicians have shied away from this because they're concerned, well, boy, if they've already got BPH and bladder obstruction and I give them an anticholinergic to relax the bladder, I'm just going to put that man into urinary retention and buy him bigger problems. But if they really have detrusor overactivity and bladder irritability 
in men with post-void residuals of less than 200 and a max flow rate of greater than 5 cc's per hour, these medications have shown to be completely safe with the risk of exacerbating retention in only 3% of men. And for those men that have both that bladder component and that outlet component, it can be a real um, quality of life game changer. In patients who have had on alpha antagonists and they ask for a phosphodiesterase inhibitor for erectile dysfunction, I've always had to warn them about the potential for hypotension. Is there a problem using these medications daily together? Yeah. So what we do is we typically uh, separate these medications by 12 hours. So what we'll do is we'll have them take their phosphodiesterase inhibitor in the morning, and typically it's 5 milligrams of the of the Tadalafil, and then they take their alpha blocker at night um, before bed so that they, they miss those first pass um, mechanisms of when those medications interact. Okay. And really the side effects from that has really been reported as minimal, but it is certainly something to discuss and warn the patient about. So let's say our patient has progressed on pharmacologic therapy. Uh, what can you do to help them now as, uh, as, a, as a urologist and uh, surgical techniques? So once they've passed on maximal medical therapy or they just don't like the side effects of the medication or they don't like the idea of lifelong um, therapy, then the next step is really to start talking about surgical intervention. And there's a spectrum of these interventions, and they range all the way from minimally invasive surgical options that can be done in the office, such as some of the newer procedures such as the resume steam-induced thermal therapy, or putting in um, mechanical devices to open up the urinary channel known as the Urolift. These are nice options because they offer office-based solutions for these patients. They shouldn't be thought of as debulking procedures where these patients are going to urinate like they're 17 again, but they should be thought of as alternatives to medication and maybe doing a little bit better than medication. There's other options for those patients at risk. Um, who have very large prostates, such as prostatic arterial embolization. Some of the data on that is maturing, and it's highly dependent on the ability and the services of the interventional department doing those uh, embolizations. Generally, when we talk about surgical therapies, if you look at the global market, the gold standard is still an open or robotic laparoscopic-assisted simple adenectomy or prostatectomy for very large prostates and still a TRP for prostates less than 60 to 80 grams. Um, however, there's also this new assortment of all these debulking procedures. Some of them use lasers to ablate and open up that channel. Really, probably something that could be considered to push the gold standard is HOLUP, or homium laser enucleation of the prostate. It's the exact same as doing the open surgery, but it's all done transurethrally with equivalent, if not better, outcomes in the open robotic surgery with same-day discharge or overnight discharge. Foy catheter comes out in one day in 90% of the patients. The risk of a blood transfusion is less than 3%. It can treat prostates of any size, and the retreatment rate is less than 1%. So the literature is kind of emerging that that's becoming the new gold standard for BPH. But the important thing is, is really you have to individualize it to the patient and their treatment. For example... If that patient comes in and says, boy, I'm a little bothered by my symptoms, I don't want to take these medications, but I just don't want the risk of antegrade ejaculation, well, then maybe the resume or the Eurolift may be a good option for that patient. If that patient says, I really don't care about anything else, 
I just want to pee like I'm 17 years old again, and what is it going to take for that? Then that patient may be better suited for an enucleation um, type procedure. So a little bit depends on the services available, the patient's symptoms, and what their desired outcome. So a lot of different options. Are all of these options as effective as a TURP? And what about the reprocedure rate? Uh, do they need something in the future? Are they pretty permanent? Yeah, so it depends on which one you're talking about. And, and so when we talk about the old TURP or the rotor rooter or however it's raised, today most of the industry is moving towards bipolar TURP. And the reason for that is that uh, increases the safety margin for patients because it moves away from using um, glycol, glycine or sorbitol as the, as the irrigation fluid, moves us more towards saline, which is isotonic, so it removes all the electrolyte disturbances, uh, risk of TERP, um, and so a lot of the industry is moving towards that. If you look at the literature um, and, and you look at the literature on the Eurolift and the Resume, that hasn't really matured yet, but the one-year retreatment rate is somewhere between 12 and 20% on who you read. So you have to realize, yes, we're doing a minimally invasive surgery that one in four or one in five men are probably going to have to have something done in the ride, but the rest of them do just fine with it. When you look at um, laser ablation procedures like the old PVP, the green light, the retreatment rate there is between 15 and 30% at five years. Well, the retreatment rate after the TERP, which is still a very good option, is anywhere from 12 to 18% in 7 to 10 years. Um, as I stated before, the retreatment rate with open or hole-up is typically less than 1%. So a lot of men really go after that final solution rather than um, trying to consider therapy as an annuity. We've been talking about benign prostatic hyperplasia with Dr. Mitchell Humphreys, a Mayo Clinic physician in urology. Mitch, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.